Appreciate those who are uh, leading the music, leading us well on that uh, last song. It's a little more challenging, but it's good for us to be challenged sometimes, and it is uh, definitely good, uh, good words for us to consider with regard to God and His attitude towards sin and how He judges it, which is one of the topics that comes up in the chapter that we're going to look at here this morning. My body, my choice. I'm sure you've probably heard this slogan before. Perhaps you've encountered it as a feminist rallying cry to silence their opponents, much like the pagans shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians in Acts 19. Perhaps you've heard it in the last six months, the story where someone tried to co-opt it as part of an anti-mask statement. You might chant the slogan because you believe it, or because you want to antagonize someone who does. Either way, it's false. Leviticus 18 clearly teaches us the opposite. It's not my body, my choice, but it is your body belongs to God. The great lie of our day that is that ignoring God's ownership of our bodies gives us freedom. Instead, it brings, according to this passage, death and misery. So let's explore these ideas further. First of all, following God's statutes about your body brings life. Now, I want to make clear that I am not saying we are bound by the Old Testament law to follow it because we have been freed from the requirement to follow the law by the coming and the death and the perfect life and ministry of Christ. That being said, because God does not change, the principles that we find in this passage don't just suddenly disappear because Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament law. And so there's that tension. We are not necessarily experiencing, uh, for example, the consequences of disobeying chapter 18 that are found in chapter 20, the death penalty, because we're not part of the nation of Israel. And yet, for us to then go to the other extreme and say, well, just because there is no human government that necessarily punishes these things today, that let's forget about them and God doesn't care about them would also be a lie. And so with that as the backdrop, Let's consider what this passage says. Following God's statutes, first of all, about your body brings life. We saw this in verses 1 through 5. It demands clear commitment. Why is that? Because there's a choice that's being made. God said, don't do what they did in Egypt, where you came from, and don't do what they're doing in Canaan, where you're going, because both of them are unacceptable to me. They're abomination in my sight. And so there has to be a clear choice not to do the things that the nations that they came out from were doing or the ones that they would encounter in the future were doing. Instead, they were to do what God required because He was their God. Verse 4, I am the Lord your God. And verse 2, I am the Lord your God. So why do we do what God says? Because if He is our God, we have a relationship with Him, we want to please Him, we love Him, and so forth. So, it demands a clear, a clear commitment. It's not going to happen by accident because... The reality is, when you are immersed in a particular culture, it is very easy for you to adopt the attitudes and thoughts and the practices of that culture. For, so for you to go against that requires a choice, a commitment, a decision on your part that you follow through on. Following God with regard to these principles about your body also leads to life. Verse 5, keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. And obviously, man is the word used specifically, but generally, by which a person may live, right? How is this? Well, 
In their context, that was because in Leviticus 20, ignoring the statutes led to the death penalty. They were to be cut off from their people. And I know we talked about last week, sometimes being cut off was not an immediate consequence, but for violation of these laws that God laid out here, this was a judgment that the people were to carry out against their fellow Israelites so as to preserve the holiness that God required of them as a nation. And beyond just the immediate threat in their situation and in their uh, nation of death, there is the broader principle that I think we still ought to understand today, which is that God rewards obedience, and obedience also protects from many evils. So when he says, by which a man may live, there is clear association between obeying God and long life throughout the Scriptures. One of the clearest examples of this would be, children, obey your parents that it may be well with you and you may live long in the land the Lord your God will give you, right? Not in every case is the opposite of a command true, but in this case it is. There is the, the implication that if you disobeyed your parents, it would not be well with you and you would not live long on the land. How do we know that? Because of the penalties that we're going to see in chapter 19 associated with dishonoring parents and so forth, right? And even today, there's just the practical reality that someone who disobeys and ignores what their parents are telling them, obviously if parents are telling you to sin, you can't do that. But 90, 95% of the time, parents are not telling their children to sin. They're doing things because, however imperfectly, they are trying to do what's, what's good for them, right? And if a child says, well, I don't care that you're trying to do this thing that's good for me. I'm going to go my own way. What ends up happening? Sometimes nothing. Sometimes something severe. Sometimes even death as a result of ignoring wisdom and counsel and advice of parents, right? And so in the sense that it protects from many evils, God both rewards obedience, generally speaking, and the protecting from many evils, there's all sorts of things that maybe your parents have experienced um, or are aware of that you don't know about or you haven't experienced, and they want to spare you the heartache of what they've gone through. And in a broader sense, God as our Heavenly Father says, if you go down this road, here's the death and destruction and misery it's going to lead to, and I don't want that for you as my people. You can experience life or you can experience death. You can experience joy or you can experience misery. What happened with the Israelites? Just thinking back through their history. They ignored what God said. And they experienced death and destruction and misery. Why? Because we reap what we sow, God doesn't change, and the way that the world works is not an unpredictable sort of thing. If you do this, here's what follows. If you do this, here's what follows. Are there occasionally exceptions? Yes. Are there occasionally people who, as the book of Ecclesiastes wrestles with, are wicked but live long on the earth? Yes. But statistically, God says you're going to lose. And in the broad scheme of his righteous judgment, you will be held accountable. And so, we, we want to believe that things will be different for us than they were for this other person who went down this path and had a miserable life. But that is both unrealistic and more or less calling God a liar. So we can't go that way. 
So following God's statutes about your body brings life. Now the middle part, which we did not read in our scripture reading, but I think uh, you'll understand as we go through this, the next point, which is that following God's statutes about your body is complex. This is verses 6 through 23. The first thing of what it says here is with regard to how we use our bodies from the fact that God made us male and female and the fact that males and females interact in particular ways. God has said that that is supposed to be in the context of marriage, a lifelong commitment, a leaving of father and mother according to the book of Genesis, a joining of a man and a woman in marriage with a commitment. What sort of things then are off limits? Well, according to this passage, verses 6 through 17, blood relatives are off limits. You are not supposed to, in the Israelite uh, situation, you are not supposed to marry, for example, um, your mother. You are not supposed to marry your sister or your niece or nephew or people who are related to you by blood. Now, people have said, well, the reason for this is that we know that there are mutations. And I understand that there are mutations, right? Maggie went through treatment for a brain tumor, and the different types of uh, brain tumors that exist are connected with different mutations that happen in particular parts of your body that arise to particular features of a particular tumor. So yes, I recognize that mutations exist. However, merely trying to avoid mutations that happen, for example, in some of the ancient dynastic lines, or even more recently in, for example, some of the uh, families of Europe or of England or so forth, basically what happened is they intermarried and many of them went insane or had all sorts of deformities. They had all sorts of strange problems growing on because of mutations that happened when you marry a close relative. So that's bad, right? But if we stop there and just say, don't do it because bad things will happen to the way that your body is formed and to your kids and to your grandkids, that doesn't get at the heart of this passage. What is the heart of this passage? If you notice throughout this section, he says, for example, verse 6, none of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncovered nakedness, I am the Lord. And over and over again, in all these verses, it basically has this idea of don't approach, don't uncover nakedness. Now, what's, what's the big deal about that? Well, Adam and Eve, for example, in the Garden of Eden were naked and were not ashamed. Why? Because sin had not yet arrived to corrupt and twist that state of nakedness into being something that could be perverse and ungodly and unclean. Now, am I saying that nakedness is sinful automatically? No, but in a context where sin has entered into the world, nakedness has shame attached to it. And so I think the larger principle that stands behind what's being said here is that there is a need for a covering in both a literal and a figurative sense just like we talked about covering for sin all throughout the book of Leviticus up to this point, there also needs to be covering for bodies. Why? Well, because God established that pattern. Adam and Eve sinned, became ashamed, covered up that sin or attempted to by taking leaves and sewing them together and clothing themselves, right? 
But then God says, no, there is a sacrifice for sin. He killed animals. He takes the hides of the animals, makes clothes for Adam and Eve, and gives them those to wear. And so there is this, there is this close link between covering of our bodies because sin is in the world and covering of our souls, if you will, through the sacrifices that God has offered. And so God is saying, here's the parameters, here's the guidelines I'm giving you. The only situation in which uncovering of that is permissible is in the situations that I say it is. Now, how do we know that this isn't just an Old Testament thing? Well, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a scenario that arises in the church at Corinth. And Paul says, It is reported there is immorality among you of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, or even the Gentiles don't approve of this, that someone has his father's wife. Now, our natural reaction is to say that's, that's strange and gross and we don't want anything to do with that, right? But there's an important thing that we need to think about what this is saying. Paul is saying, even though this was something that was in the Old Testament law, it's still not right, and even the Gentiles deep down recognize it's not appropriate and not the, the right thing to do, right? And so the problem for the church at Corinth was they were saying, well, Jesus has forgiven sin, so even if this is bad and we don't think it is, it's no big deal because Jesus has forgiven it and taken care of it. So they were boasting about it. They were saying, look at us, we can sin, and God has forgiven us, and no big deal. And Paul says that is absolutely the wrong attitude to have. First of all, God still cares about this. And second of all, you can't tolerate sin in the assembly of the church. You need to deal with it so that what? He may be ashamed. So there is a link between the shame of violating what God has given in Leviticus 18, the moral principles, and that continues even now. And we're going to see that with a number of these other things in this passage because the number one argument people will have for saying why this doesn't matter and we can do whatever we want with our bodies is if they have some connection with Christianity. Well, that was the Old Testament. We don't have to worry about that anymore. But this is not just an Old Testament thing. And I, I hope to show you that this morning. So the first thing we see here is that blood relatives are off limits. Now, much has been made about which things are in this list and which things are not. But uh, we don't have time to go into all of that. I do want to address some of the common objections to what God lays out here. First of all, Genesis 4.17. Cain married a wife and had a son. Think about how many people were in the world at the time that Cain married a wife and had a son. Adam and Eve. Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Where did Cain get his wife? He had to have married his sister because there were no other people alive in the world at that time unless we say that the creation account is false or that God just magically created a bunch of other people we don't know about. Cain married his sister. Okay? So then the second thing. What about like Abraham and having more than one wife? Because that kind of ties into this too, right? Now technically what Abraham did didn't violate what's laid out here, but what Jacob did was a violation of it. Why do I say that? Well, for example, verse 18, you shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. So technically, Abraham did not violate at least verse 18, but Jacob did, right? 
because Jacob married Rachel and Leah, sisters together. Was that okay? Well, how did it work out for Abraham and Hagar and Sarah? And how did it work out for Jacob and Rachel and Leah and Bilhah and Zilpah? Disaster. And so if we just look at the consequences that flowed from their decision to do that, I don't think that we would conclude, well, God was fine with this and everything was, uh, they lived happily ever after, right? Because that's not what happened. Sarah mistreated Hagar. There was rivalry between Ishmael and Isaac. Those families, that rivalry continues even until this day between all the nations on the Arabian Peninsula and in that region and the nation of Israel. That continues today. That conflict in the Middle East has been like the thing that people have been trying to fix for centuries and it hasn't happened. Think about Jacob's family. Jacob's family has all of these brothers as rivals with each other, right? So much so that they're like, yeah, we'll probably kill this one because we really hate him. I think that we can see by the way that that story develops that if Jacob had exercised self-control and been content with Leah despite the fact that Laban tricked him when he married her, Joseph probably wouldn't have been sent down to Egypt. And then we'll be like, but, but, but God wouldn't have provided for them. And all these, just because God uses it and fixes all the ways that all these people messed up doesn't justify their sinful actions, right? What was God's plan for marriage from the beginning? God's plan for marriage from the beginning was one man, one woman for life. The man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, they shall be one flesh. That was God's principle and God's command. We see this repeated by Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 8, where he says, in the context of a discussion of divorce, it was not this way from the beginning, but Moses permitted you to do it for reason of the hardness of your hearts. Here's what God's plan and principle was from the beginning. One man, one woman for life, right? So that was what God laid out. Why is this important? Why can we not just do whatever we want? Because Marriage, as we find out in the New Testament, is supposed to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And I want to be careful because sometimes we think that's just something that appeared in the New Testament, but there's a lot of language in the Old Testament that describes the relationship between God and His people Israel in, the context, in marriage sort of terms. So this is not a new concept when we come to it in Ephesians 5. It's a theme all throughout the Old Testament. One other thing that I think I should mention in terms of addressing this question of why was there not an immediate death penalty for marriage to blood relatives in Genesis? Why was there not an immediate punishment for Jacob marrying Rachel and Leah other than their lives falling apart? I think the answer is in part found in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, Paul's preaching to a bunch of pagans some of whom would have been okay with the things that this passage forbids. And he said to them that um, God was, verse 30, overlooking the times of ignorance, but now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. There seems to be a measure of patience that God showed toward the sinful actions of people and a, and a gradual unfolding of revelation of what God is saying. And so in connection with that, God didn't change his mind, but he also didn't say everything all at once of what he wanted people to be and do. Now, 
We could argue he did say, here's what I want you to do, because he laid out the pattern with Adam and Eve. But then people went away from that pattern, and God showed patience with them. We'll talk more about that here in a few moments. So, in terms of parameters for who you can marry, blood relatives are off limits. That's the basic principle from this section. There is a challenging verse in verse 19, and I would basically sum it up this way. Even marriage requires some self-control. There are times when it is appropriate for a husband and wife to come together, and there are times which, in principle, this says they are not. Perhaps there's a connection back to the blood and life idea from Leviticus 17, but I want to point your attention forward to the New Testament primarily. When you come across a verse like verse 19, and why would he forbid a physical relationship between a husband and wife when they are legitimately married? Well, I think there's some principles in the New Testament that help us to understand this. 1 Peter 3.7 says, Husbands, dwell with your wives in an understanding way. And even though there is a right and appropriate being one flesh relationship between a husband and a wife, there is also, I think, a recognition that there are times when a husband needs to exercise self-control. His wife has just had a baby. If she's recovering from a severe illness. I mean, there's a number of probably other scenarios, but I think a husband who in those scenarios say, you owe it to me to have a one flesh relationship with me because we're married and this is what married people are supposed to have and be and do, is not dwelling with his wife in an understanding way. But self-control, on the other hand, is not an invitation to permanent abstinence between a husband and a wife. 1 Corinthians 7.5, for example, says there should be a spiritual focus. If a husband and a wife are abstaining from a physical relationship for a period of time, that period of time should be devoted to prayer and recommitting themselves to God and all of those sorts of things. And so this passage would say, in connection with looking back to the principle here in chapter 18, verse 19, there are times when you don't, and there are times when you do, but you need to follow what God has laid out so that you're not led into temptation. That's the the context of 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 5. And so, when someone ignored and violated what God had laid out in verse 19 of Leviticus 18, I think that it was a potential safeguard against pagan practices that we may not be aware of today, but it also anticipates the principles of the New Testament. Dwell in an understanding way, exercise self-control, avoid temptation, show love in the way that God would have you to do in the context of marriage. And then we come to the verses that are even... I mean, people will argue about verses 6 through 19 just because they like to make fun of the Old Testament, but they really don't want to listen to what verses 20 through 23 say because they would condemn various people's lifestyles today. Pagan practices are strictly forbidden. Verse 20, you shall not have a physical relationship with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. What does this have to do with? Well, adultery in the Bible is often used as a symbol of idolatry. Going back to what I said a few moments ago, marriage is supposed to picture God's faithfulness to his people. When that is abandoned... For example, the sinful and and just perverse actions of the nations of Israel and Judah 
Ezekiel 22 and 23, Proverbs 6 and 7, the description of the adulterous woman. This is a clear violation of the principle that says marriage pictures God's faithfulness to his people. So why does God say don't commit adultery? What in the world does that have to do when the other three seem to be connected with pagan worship? Because adultery has a connection to pagan worship. It is a rejection of the faithfulness of a follower of God to follow the lack of self-control and the wickedness of the pagan peoples. Now, I want to point out that this is not just a woman's problem. Sometimes people, I think, have looked at the Bible and they've acted and said, well, you know, the woman is always at fault when adultery happens. She led the man astray. That is absolutely not true. David sought out Bathsheba to commit adultery with her. There was uh, an account I was reading recently of the grandson of a well-known evangelical preacher, and he said, oh, my, my wife committed adultery, and so in response to it, then I did too, and I made a mistake, but it was in response to what she did. Well, then it came out later that he was already committing adultery with another woman long before his wife did. He then married one of those women I believe he committed adultery with, and he's now started a new church. And the premise of his church is, well, God uses broken people, which is absolutely true. But what's missing from that sort of scenario? There has to be repentance, right? There has to be an acknowledgement what I did was wrong, and there has to be a recognition that you can't be going back and forth between reconciling with your wife and marrying your girlfriend and then say, well, but all sins are forgiven in Jesus, because what does the New Testament say about that? Sin is forgiven in Jesus, but that doesn't mean you get to keep doing it the whole time, right? And we can be like, how could that person be such a wicked person? Examine your heart and your soul. There are many times when we know exactly what we should not do, and we do it anyway because we love sin more than God. And we need God's grace to root out that attitude from amongst us. But verse 20 says, Your neighbor's wife is off limits. The Ten Commandments make this clear. The context of this passage makes it clear. And this is where I think we want to, pick, we want to skip down to verse 22 and say homosexuality is wrong. But what we don't want to do, or what we often fail to do, is say adultery is wrong. Now, I think I've made this clear over the time that I've been preaching and conversing with you. I don't think that divorce excludes someone from serving in the church. And I don't think every sin that a person commits automatically excludes them from ever having any ministry in the church, right? But like in the example I just gave you a moment ago, if there is no repentance and if there is no godly reputation after whatever the sin is, there is a disqualifying aspect of that to serving in the church because it gives a bad testimony and perspective of God to anyone who's involved in that ministry. And so it's been easy for us to overlook adultery in the context of churches and for big-name evangelical TV preacher, whatever kind of people, to get restored to ministry far too quickly because we don't see how big of a deal this is in God's sight. And because for 
probably the better part of 50 to 75 years, depending on how you calculate it. This has sort of been the attitude of our culture, right? Two people living together, not a big deal. Somebody had an affair, a fling, a mistake, an oversight, eh, everybody does that at least one point in their life. Or a lot of people do, so it's not that big of a deal. And so remember what I said earlier about us soaking in the culture that's around us? You and I would never openly admit that we think that that's okay. But as we consume secular media, as we have conversations with people around us, if we are not reminded periodically of what God has said is right and wrong, we're going to just sort of have this attitude that this is all fine because this is what people do because this is what we see around us every day. Verse 21. You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. This one doesn't seem to fit. The whole chapter is about how we use our bodies physically in the context of being male and female and a physical relationship and marriage and all of that. What in the world does worship of Molech have to do with this, right? Because there's this phrase in the Old Testament where it says people would pass their children through the fire to Molech. And we understand from, his, from history that basically what they would do is there would be this burning altar of Molech and they would put their children on it and burn them alive as a child sacrifice to Molech in the hopes that Molech would give them increased fertility and other blessings, if you want to call it that. We see this, for example, here, Leviticus 20, 2 Kings, several passages there. What is the connection with what's going on here? Here's the connection. There was ritual prostitution connected with many pagan religions. A woman or a man would give their body in service to the God and other people would come and have a physical relationship with that person which should only happen in the context of marriage. What's the inevitable result of that? Children. What probably ended up happening then after that? It's not an advantage for that person who's in service to their pagan temple to have children running around. So many of those children are going to end up getting sacrificed again. And the cycle repeats. We think this doesn't happen today. And um, I'm not trying to harp on the subject of abortion, but I think it's very relevant here. When you say, I can do whatever I want with my body, my body, my choice and you say, I'm not going to follow God's parameters where he says go and get married and then have a physical relationship with someone, but I go have a physical relationship with someone in whatever way I choose, and then a child results from it for whatever reason, and then you say, but here are all the things I want out of life, and you sacrifice that child's life so you can have what you want, there's a very clear connection back to the paganism we see forbidden in verse 20, or rather verse 21. Now, I think that we need to be sympathetic to women who find themselves pregnant for a variety of reasons. Um, and I'm not saying that every person who's ever had a physical relationship with someone outside of marriage went into it knowing full well everything that they were doing and all the consequences of it. I think that would be foolish to assume that, right? But at the same time, we cannot say, like, 90% or more of women who were surveyed by 
the Guttmacher Institute, which studies this topic of abortion, we cannot say, well, legitimate reasons for why someone would do this is, I'm not ready, I can't afford it, I'm done having kids, or it would interfere with something I want to do in life. We cannot sacrifice someone's life for the sake of our own convenience and our goals. So just like I said, adultery is not a woman's problem. Abortion is not strictly a woman's problem either. Why? Because the people who are going to those pagan temples or the men who are getting women pregnant today, they bear responsibility in this. So if a man chooses not to follow God's principles, has a physical relationship with a woman, and a baby is conceived as a result of it, and then that woman kills that baby, the father is responsible for that as well. And so going back to what I said at the very beginning about avoiding heartache and misery and suffering, God gave us rules that we think are tedious or our society thinks are tedious. And when we ignore them, we think we have freedom, but the freedom, the sexual revolution that people talked about in the, in the last century, what has it brought? Slavery and misery and destruction. Verse 22. Verse 22, people want to argue about the way that it should be translated. Traditionally, it's been taken basically as forbidding homosexuality generally. God said, a man and a woman get married and have kids in the context of a loving lifetime relationship in God's sight. And there have been people throughout history who have said, no, we want it to be a man and a man or a woman and a woman. And so it is possible, I will allow that it is possible in the grammar of the verse that what's being emphasized here is not just generally the idea of same with same, man with man, woman with woman, but rather some sort of temple ritual. I think the grammar would allow that it's focused on some sort of temple ritual which was not uncommon in pagan times where a man would have a physical relationship with a boy in connection with temple worship. And if some of you are sitting here uncomfortably, I think we need to be uncomfortable with this because we need to see that this is a problem. And here's where I would take that in connection with what does it have to do with our church today? What is the history of the Roman Catholic Church in the last hundred years? Abuse of young children. We're not immune to that in the context of our churches. Now, I'm not saying that I'm aware of anything like that happening in our church. Please hear me. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying if we say, well, that's a problem for them over there and it couldn't be a problem here, I think we'd be foolish because sin is real, the Satan is at work in the world, and people's basic sinfulness is not different than it was when the book of Leviticus was written. So, what can we do as a church to avoid some of these problems? The trauma and the suffering that happens to someone who experiences that, and the continuing in sin and hypocrisy and hard-heartedness of someone who would perpetrate it, we have to set boundaries and have wisdom in how we do things like children's ministry. And so we have guidelines that are in place that we need to be following. And so, you know, this is why it's important when regards to something like the nursery. This is why I would say, you know, if we have a visitor, here's the tag, 
the tag goes to the parent. Here's why there's two people with kids when they're teaching them. Here's why we have a hall monitor or whatever else. These aren't just rituals or empty things we do to fill time because we want to do them. They're because we want to guard against people who would violate this passage and ruin their life and someone else's. So, broader application, however, even if this verse is specifically focused on a, a power dynamic where someone in control takes advantage of someone under their charge, which very well could be the meaning of the sense of this verse, it is very clear from the New Testament and from other passages in the Old Testament that God's not okay with homosexuality generally, just if this is not the main focus here in this verse. How do we know this? Because Romans 1 says, when you reject God, it leads to a misunderstanding of how you're supposed to use your body as male and female. It leads to a deliberate corruption of that. It leads to a degradation of that. It leads to further shameful practices. And so the person who would say, well, Leviticus is only saying, don't take advantage of someone, but if a man and a man or a woman and a woman love each other, it's fine. Romans 1 argues against that because it says they're committing idolatry and rejecting God in order to get the point of saying, this is fine. And there's a lot of pressure in our society today to not say that, to say, well, it has to be okay, right? Because if you love someone, how can you, how can you not want someone love the person that they love? For the same reason that God said you can't do all these other sorts of things. I mean, maybe someone really thought they loved their sister or their uncle or their whoever, and God said you can't marry that person either, right? God has established boundaries. We may not like them. We may not want to follow them. We may feel that deep down in our core something is broken in us, and we can't follow what God has said. But the Bible says that's not true. Why? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. I'm just going to read that little section for you here. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then an important and a life-changing phrase that gives hope. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So if you think that you can't follow God because you're a thief, if you think that you can't follow God because you have homosexual tendencies, if you think you can't follow God because you are tempted toward adultery, if you think that you can't follow God because you have been a drunk, whatever it is, People who had been those things were now in the church at Corinth. Paul addresses them as saints, and he says, God has changed your life. Now, here's the tension. There are people today who want to say, well, God, God maybe helps people, but, but that person is still a whatever, right? So then we have this whole identity language. So here's the Christian homosexual. Well, we wouldn't say here's the Christian thief. We wouldn't say, here's the Christian murderer. Why? Because we recognize those things are incompatible. I'm not saying this is an easy thing. This can be a lifelong struggle for people. 
This can be a, 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 a huge work of God to work in someone's life. And the goal is not that someone who says, I think men and men is okay or women and women is okay. The goal is not for them to come over here and say, men with women is okay and I'm going to get married. That might happen, it might not, if God persuades and changes their heart. The solution is not move from having a wrong physical relationship to move to having a right physical relationship. The solution is changing who you're worshiping from yourself to worshiping God, because Romans 1 says that's the basic problem. Because you did not acknowledge God, this happened, so you need to acknowledge God, whether or not you ever get married and have kids and have a normal, typical, stereotypical family, right? What about verse 23? Verse 23. You should not have a physical relationship with an animal to be defiled with it, nor shall a woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. And you say, why in the world would this be in here? Remember in Leviticus 17, verse 7, it says, they shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. It seems that part of the customs of the pagans were for there to be a physical relationship between people and animals and some sort of perverse enactment of what they wanted their God to do and provide for them. And you say, well, that would never happen today. It does happen in some parts of the world, and the application in our society would be that there are people who say, well, this idea of people with animals is just sort of like a fun thing. We're going to like dress up and play along, and it's, it's, it's a normal thing. I mean, you, this person can say, this is the thing that they like, and this person can say, this is the thing that they like. And this verse says, no, you can't do that. I think we would also do well to examine our culture's hypocritical exaltation of the lives of animals and degradation of the lives of people. That's not a one-for-one one for what this verse is saying, but let me explain that. You can have people who raise millions of dollars for a shelter for animals and care nothing for children who have no parents and are in need of a loving family. And if that is not a symptom of what's broken in the worship and the thoughts and the attitudes of our society, I'm not sure what is, right? And we may not go to the corruption of what this verse is specifically prohibiting, but if we're worshiping animals and downgrading people, we certainly share the same attitudes. Third point, and we'll wrap up with this. Following God's statutes about your body avoids death and destruction. This was where we closed with our scripture reading this morning. Following God's statutes, first of all, avoids judgment of entire nations. Verse 24 and 25, By these things the nations I cast out before you have become defiled. The land has become defiled. I have brought its punishment upon it. It has spewed out its inhabitants. So what does God say flows out of ignoring the principles that he's given for his ownership of our bodies and saying, my body, my choice? Destruction of the land. It's the idea that the people are on the land and the land vomits them out of it. Now, there are people who immediately jump to something like, here's a flood or a fire or a tornado, and here's the specific sin that someone has done that causes it. I think we have to be careful. I think that's a dangerous thing for us to do because we don't have all of God's knowledge 
and these things affect both godly people and ungodly people. But should we be surprised if we abandon what God has said about His ownership of our bodies that our country would experience fires and floods and tornadoes and extreme weather and other disasters? Should we be surprised if foreign nations make war upon us and carry us away into exile like foreign nations made war on the Israelites and carried them into exile when they violated what God told them to do here? No, we should not be surprised because the passage says, if you do these things, it defiles the land, the land vomits them out, right? This is not some sort of mystical, like we're one with nature kind of thing. This is a, God says, this is the consequence for corruption, Furthermore, God's statutes following them has a ripple effect. It's not supposed to just be about... We might think, well, but this was just for the Israelites. But if you look at verse 26, you shall not do any of these abominations, the native nor the alien, the stranger who sojourns among you. So not only were the Israelites not supposed to do it, but they weren't supposed to permit people who were non-Israelites dwelling in the land to act in these ways. Now I recognize that we are not in a theocratic society where God is our ruler, where the laws are the laws of the Bible. I'm not saying that it is that way or that it necessarily should be that way because it's not going to happen until Jesus comes back. But, again, against the argument that it was just for the Israelites, verse 26 says, no one in the land of Israel was supposed to do these things because positive actions would protect them and Sinful actions would have an effect on all of them. See the story of Jonah for an example of this. Following God's statutes at a basic level prolonged life. Verses 27 through 29, disobedience led to being cut off, right? And even today, like I said already from Romans 1, these acts are a sign of God's judgment. Now here's the fascinating thing. Leviticus 18 says if you do these things, you should be cut off from your people. There was an immediate consequence, more or less, right? Romans 1 says it is a sign of God's judgment that people are doing these things. And so the person who is doing those things might say, well, nothing's happening to me. Lightning strike me down. Oh, you didn't do it. Nothing. It's all good, right? Which is a scarier position to be in? I sin and there's an immediate consequence or I continue in my sin when the Bible says continue in my sin is a sign of God's judgment and I'm not immediately punished. If God abandons you to your sin, that's as much a sign of God's judgment as if he cuts you off. And that's where I think we have to be careful because in our society today, we assume that blessing of God is connected with success, and as long as you're successful, measured in various ways, as a church or as an individual, everything's great and wonderful. If, if your sin doesn't catch up to you, if, you're, um, if there's no immediate consequence, you're fine, right? But I think the Bible will make it clear that's not true. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, following God's statutes show you remember who your God is. Verse 30. Keep my charge so you don't practice the abominable customs which have been practiced before you to, so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. What's the most basic reason that we'll do what God says? Because he's our God. This was sufficient reason for Joseph when Potiphar's wife says, commit adultery with me. This should have been sufficient reason for David when he saw Bathsheba, he should have said, that's my neighbor's wife, I will not take her. 
And that should be sufficient reason for us. But if that's not yet sufficient reason for you and I, because we've been ingrained in habits of sin, or because we've adopted the culture around us so thoroughly, then the warnings of this passage should be a starting place for helping us to untangle ourselves from the sorts of ungodly attitudes about our body that God calls us to abandon and replace with the ones that he said. It's not my body, my choice. It's God's body to be used in service to him in the ways that he says that you can use it. And that's what a passage like this calls us to do. However hard and countercultural and difficult it is to live up to that, which only we can do through the work of Christ in us. So if someone says, going back to what I was saying earlier, well, I have committed adultery, but now I'm going to stop. You need Jesus' forgiveness. You need the Holy Spirit's power. You need forgiveness from God the Father for that to ever succeed. More importantly, you need to want a relationship with God because stopping the sin and doing a normal thing is not the first and primary goal, although we should stop the sin. Knowing and loving and following God because your life belongs to Him, as we saw last week, and your body belongs to Him, that's, I think, one of the lessons we need to walk away from Leviticus 18 with. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your truth in your word. A number of difficult subjects that we have looked at in this section. The basic question for us is, as we saw from 1 Corinthians 6, are, which side of this do we stand on? Are we living in these things that you have forbidden? Or do we... Um, have we experienced the salvation, the forgiveness that you offer? Are we those who will inherit the kingdom by your grace? Lord, we pray that that would be the true of all of us today. Lord, if there are things in our heart that we need to repent of, that this passage is revealed to us, Lord, help us to turn from those, not necessarily even the, the most debased forms of the sins that this passage outlines, but even the attitudes and the thoughts that... Eh, I wouldn't do this, but it's okay that it's so easy for us to uh, have as a part of our thinking and our attitudes. Lord, our goal as we consider these things is not to use it as a tool to look down on people around us who are enslaved by these sins, but rather to see the misery and shame and suffering that they are experiencing and to take them the hope of the gospel. Well, we can only do that well, Lord, if we are living in purity and holiness before you. So we pray, Lord, you would help us to do that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.